0: This is C-SPAN's The Weekly, I'm Steve Scully. In just one month, a new Congress has convened, the 46th president has been inaugurated, and after weeks of wrangling, the Democrats finally reaching an agreement with the GOP to take narrow control of the U.S. Senate. In fact, it is an evenly divided 50-50 Senate, with Vice President Kamala Harris casting the key tie-breaking vote. And now, a budget debate over President Biden's $1.9 trillion coronavirus package its front and center. It is a debate in which one party is using a process called reconciliation to potentially exclude the other party. Here's Republican John Cornyn of Texas and a Democratic leader, Chuck Schumer.
1: Our Democratic colleagues are preparing to abuse the budget reconciliation process to ram President Biden's coronavirus relief proposal through the Senate.
0: There's nothing about the process itself that prevents bipartisanship. What has made recent reconciliation efforts by Senate Republicans so partisan was not the process, but the legislation they sought to pass. That from the Senate floor, ahead on the weekly Understanding the U.S. Senate, and just why it operates the way it does. Our guest is Sarah Bender. She has co-written a number of books on the legislative process, serves as a senior fellow at Brookings. She also teaches political science at George Washington University. Our conversation begins with an explanation of just what reconciliation is. And to understand that, you need to understand the Congressional Budget Act of 1974.
1: Congressional Democrats in 1974, uh, enacted the Congressional Budget Act. Uh, they did it over the veto of uh, President Nixon. Uh, and that law is pretty key to understanding what's going on in the Senate and the House uh, this month and next. So the law gave Congress new power back in 74 in writing the federal budget. And it included two key parts that we're seeing on the floor this week and in the coming weeks. First, it it allowed Congress, and it gave it the ability to map out a budget blueprint, sort of a set of goals uh, for guiding spending and revenue decisions for the coming fiscal year. But it also authorized a process known as reconciliation, and that bill essentially told Congress to change federal laws in a way to ensure that Congress would be able to meet those revenue and spending goals that it laid out in that blueprint. So that's what we see on the floor, right, that both the House and the Senate, the House has passed, I believe it, already, and the Senate is working on what we call the budget resolution. Uh, And when they originally wrote the law in 1974, they actually required or allowed for two budget resolutions. And it's only important to know that because it tells us why reconciliation was created and what it did. The first first resolution sort of proposed the annual budget blueprint, and then the second resolution later, right before the fiscal year began, sort of did a little bit of nip and tuck, sort of refined it, adjusted it for any spending decisions that had been made. But then they went to the reconciliation process, and that basically sewed up loose ends. It bridged the gap between the aspirations in the budget resolutions and the reality of the revenues and spending that that the government was going uh, going to go through in the coming year. So we still have that reconciliation bill, even though Congress long ago got rid of uh, the second budget resolution. So this is what we have today. Congress writes a budget, it doesn't go to the president for a signature. It's sort of it's aspirational, but it has some teeth. Uh, and then the thing is, let's say, um, let's say the budget includes uh, more money for health care for the poor. Again, that's in the, in the blueprint. But then reconciliation is used to basically make changes, say, to the federal tax code to help pay for that increased spending on health care. So reconciliation is where kind of the rubber meets the road. This is the bill that does the actual changes in laws uh, to to affect spending and revenues.
0: Let's take the history one step further, because as we pointed out, uh, then President Richard Nixon vetoing the bill, but Congress overriding that veto in 1974, the year in which Nixon resigned from the presidency because of the Watergate scandal. But what led up to the debate of the Congressional Budget Act?
1: Well, the Budget Act came on the heels of several years of conflict between Democratic majorities uh, in the House and Senate and the Republican White House, and in particular, President Nixon. And those disagreements centered on a couple of issues, but the primary one that was uh, encouraging Congress to kind of stand up for its budgeting powers, and to to stand up for its power of the purse, was that the president was, in essence, what we say, impounding money. Congress would appropriate money, let's say, for roads and bridges. And the president was deciding that he wasn't going to spend the money, Uh, sort of a direct, kind of full-frontal challenge uh, to Congress's constitutional power of the purse. And many of those disputes ended up in court. Uh, the federal courts tended to decide uh, with the Congress, but one solution here was to write the Congressional Budget Act, which is really – it gave Congress, for the first time, uh, put a, a real role in writing the budget rather than just, first of all, relying on the executive branch to write a budget, but also it created the Congressional Budget Office – so that lawmakers would no longer have to turn to the executive branch and the Office of Management and Budget and ask for their assumptions and estimates. So it, it really was a statement of Congress, and, and it seems almost foreign uh, compared to today's Congress, right? It was a statement of a Congress standing up for and exerting uh, its powers relative to the executive branch.
0: And to that point, I found this fascinating in your recent Washington Post uh, op-ed in which lawmakers viewed the process of reconciliation as a way to not only meet congressional budget goals, but also as a tool to reduce federal deficits. We now have a debt approaching $28 trillion, and Congress now debating $1.9 trillion in stimulus spending. Later this year, we're told that the Biden administration will look at another $2 trillion, for infrastructure,
1: so the the budget law. I mean, it, it's changed a little bit over time. But the ways in which majorities, sometimes bipartisan, sometimes not, have tried to use reconciliation, uh, it, it's really stretched reconciliation in ways that might not really have been anticipated uh, when the when the law was written in the '70s, and, and some of this stems from. Of the the wording uh, that's in the law about making changes uh, to federal law affecting revenues and spending rather than directing that you can't that it can't uh, impose deficits so uh, Congress has of course over the years has tried to uh, kind of manage the reconciliation process in a way to get it back to its roots of um, basically, you know, improving how we budget. And that comes through the imposition of what we call the Bird Rule that was put into, uh, sort of created in the 80s, but then written into the budget law in the 1990s. And we can get into the Bird Rule, but the, the point of the Bird Rule was basically to, a little bit to try to pare back the use of reconciliation to try to much more tightly tie it to effects on. Um, on the budget and on the deficits and to make it harder, not impossible, uh, but harder to, to use reconciliation to bust the budget. Um, but, I mean, all we have to do is look back to the last successful use of reconciliation in 2017, uh, where it was used for largely for corporate tax cuts and other tax cuts, uh, but uh, which has been estimated to cost, you know, up to $2 trillion. So, Uh, With consent of both parties, when they're the majority, uh, the the parties see this reconciliation process. It is uh, immune from a filibuster, uh, and that makes it quite attractive to majorities, especially small ones that we're used to now, that don't have the means to overcome uh, a filibuster of their proposal.
0: So you brought up the Byrd rule, of course, named after Senator Robert C. Byrd, a Democrat of West Virginia, one of the longest-serving senators in American history. What led to the Byrd rule? Why was this one of his signature accomplishments in the U.S. Senate?
1: Well, the, the issue he- here really was the ways in which uh, both administrations, uh, in particular the Reagan administration in early 1980s, in concert with a divided-split um, Congress um, really tried uh, under Byrd and also Howard Baker, uh, the Republican from Tennessee, under their leadership to try to rein in abuse of the Reconciliation's filibuster ban. Right? It, it was really very attractive uh, when, once you have a, a, a big, wide-open uh, reconciliation process here that um, could circumvent the need to attract um, 60 votes, as we say, uh, to overcome a filibuster. Uh, that led majorities to put all sorts of uh, provisions that had very little to do uh, with reducing the federal deficits. So that was the uh, really the the burden, or that was the reasons why Byrd, uh, with Baker and others, uh, moved to create this rule that was really named, <laughs> named right for Byrd himself. And that is really to prohibit and in the language of the law, we call it, quote-unquote, extraneous matter, by right? policy changes that do not have a direct and substantial impact on the federal budget.
0: Let me remind our listeners, we're talking with Sarah Binder. She is the author of the book, Politics or Principle? Filibustering in the U.S. Senate. She serves as a senior fellow at Brookings and teaches political science as a professor at George Washington University. So you have the Bird Rule, and you also have what now we call the Bird Bath. Can you explain?
1: Uh, sure. So the, the Bird Rule, and this is all written into the law, the, the Bird Rule sets out what we call a six pronged test of what counts as that fancy word there, right? Counts as extraneous matter. But if, if you just if you whipped open your your favorite copy of the Commercial Budget Act and you read the section of the sort of six points that can provoke what we call uh, a bird rule challenge, um, it's pretty difficult to understand and it's very hard to apply. And so one thing that happens here is that senators typically try out their arguments. Um, before the chamber parliamentarian. And the parliamentarian is an officer of the Senate. And the, the parliamentarian is the one to whom uh, these decisions, or really this advice and the reading of past budget rule history, uh, they, she, she, will look at your provision and give you a sense and a judgment about whether or not it is really kosher under the bird rule, right? Or, or does it uh, sort of trip over the wire of what counts as extraneous? And it, it seems weird in some ways that you have a provision and you have to go to the parliamentarian uh, to try to figure out whether it fits under the guidelines. But the, the guidelines, you know, they they can be a little gray, right? Um, I think the classic example here that's the clearest one to me is there have been efforts over the years to uh, ban federal funds from using to pay for abortions performed by, say, Planned Parenthood. And if you look at it, uh, that provision, in, in, it will uh, save the government money for all sorts of health care reasons by um, banning the use of federal funds for abortion. But the bird rule, one of the six-pronged texts, is that the, the, the reduction in the effect on the budget can't be sort of ancillary or incidental to the purpose of the provision. And if you ask the people who wrote those, who were pursuing those types of limits on Planned Parenthood, they weren't pursuing those limits because they wanted to save the government money, but because of views about uh, pro life versus pro choice attitudes, right? And so, where's the line? Like, what, and so you have all sorts of provisions, some of which are clear burglary violations, some which Fly fine through the bird rule, and some need a shaking, shaking out, and that's the bird bath, right? Where, in essence, the bill and different provisions go to the parliamentarian before the bill goes to the floor, and we say that she gives it a bird bath, right? To kind of scrub the provisions, take a look at these um, legislative uh, provisions, and see which ones uh, could get cleaned up enough. Or survive a challenge in uh, under the bird rule once that bill goes to the floor.
0: So the Senate parliamentarian really has a significant role in the debate. Would you compare her to basically a legislative referee?
1: Well, I think a referee a referee is a is a, uh, is a good way to, to think about her, right? Um the the issue here, which is slightly different, I suppose, than a referee is the the parliament. And this might just exhaust my sports <laughs> my sports analogies, right? Uh, referees make they blow the whistle, <laughs> right? They make the calls, then you better listen to, it to the refs. Well, the parliamentarian gives advice now. In essence, what she's really doing is when the bill's on the floor, she's giving advice to the presiding officer, whichever senator or the vice president is presiding over the Senate. And it's the chair, that presiding officer, who makes the actual rulings. And there's a very strong norm, sort of an expectation that you defer to the advice of the parliamentarian. So that's that's why we think and say that the parliamentarian such has such a strong impact here on uh, how the Byrd rule is implemented and the fate of different uh, and ambitious majorities trying to use reconciliation, in this case, to pursue a nearly right, $2 trillion uh, package of COVID and economic relief. Um, But it's given rise to questions about whether if the parliamentarian advises that a key provision violates the Byrd rule, well, maybe the chair should ignore the parliamentarian's advice. Um, That's one of the things that are being sort of murmured, uh, would Democrats ever go that far in order to use reconciliation in ways that protects the package that they're trying to pass?
0: And, of course, all of this comes in an evenly divided U.S. Senate, 50 Republicans, 48 Democrats, two independents who caucus with the Democrats. We saw this in 2001. We're seeing it in 2021. But my question is, just how unusual is it to have a 50-50 Senate?
1: Well, 50-50 Senates are very, very unusual, right? You reference back to 2001, but we'd have to go back— more or less to the late 19th century. There was a case in 53. uh, Senators kept dying right and left, uh, and there's some independents who, one of whom across the aisle changed his party, and so things were a little uh, loosey-goosey there for a little while. Um, But the last 50-50 Senate that stayed for a while, uh, we would reach back to maybe the 1880s, early 1880s. So it's very unusual. Um, Now, of course, we've had 51-seat majorities, 52-seat majorities, and those are also very hard. <laughs> so, uh, but 50-50 Senates are particularly just because everything hangs, uh, particularly in an increasingly partisan Senate where it's much harder to get senators from both parties uh, to agree to various measures. It makes it all the harder on a 50-50 Senate really for the majority party to make a lot of progress.
0: Are there lessons from twenty years ago that can or should be applied today
1: well lessons I think one thing to keep in mind here because the Bush tax cuts which were pursued in two thousand one under reconciliation uh, in in many ways it was a much easier uh, much easier task because it was a more popular to cut taxes, uh, and there were, there was use of the tax code, including, uh, child care, uh, and child tax credits, for instance, that appealed, uh, to members of both parties. Um, so I, are there lessons here? Uh, it is the difficulty of keeping, uh, keeping your partisans, keeping your caucus members, uh, all on the same team. But it's the lesson also, the clear one from 2001 is just the fragility of a bare, bare majority here, Um, knowing and thinking back that in 2001, um, Jim Jeffords, a Republican from uh, Vermont, uh, defected across the aisle, uh, moved to the Democratic side and handed with it, uh, right, the majority to the Democratic Party in the Senate. So um, nothing is forever, not even two years. And so uh, creates and I think increases the pressure on the Democrats to move swiftly. Uh, and the Senate, of course, is not always uh, an institution that's terribly prone uh, to moving that quickly.
0: What advice then would you give to the Senate Democratic Leader Chuck Schumer, and conversely to the Republican Leader Mitch McConnell? As you well know, the partisan battles have been fierce and intense, especially in our polarized media environment today. That certainly has changed from twenty years ago.
1: Yeah, well, they get a lot. (laughs) The leaders get they get a lot of a lot of advice for sure, and they both have long long memories. Um I think uh as a, as an academic outside uh, the institution uh looking at the world around us um I've you know eyes on the prize uh there's a lot of suffering in the US today um uh there's a real need out there um from the as Republicans have said there we have spent a lot of money on the problem uh but I think Democrats have identified uh enduring problems here imposed uh and caused by the virus so um hopefully the, the parties can find a way to, to make, uh, make the process work in a way that uh, gets the job done.
0: Sarah Binder, let me turn to some other terms that we've been hearing a lot in recent years. Uh, the first is the issue of filibustering. And where does that word, by the way, come from, the filibuster?
1: Uh, it has a long uh, lineage. Uh, we think it came originally from the Dutch uh, back probably in the 15th, 16th centuries. Uh, and I think in the... My Dutch is no good, uh, but I believe it was called freeboot, uh, which became really, it was a Dutch term for looters and robbers, right? Those who lived on other people's spoils. Um, that Dutch word gets finds its way into English, a freebooter, finds its way into Spanish, a filibustero, uh, gets used in Central America and the West Indies in the mid-19th century. And finally, the U.S. Senate, uh, it, the term gets adapted in the Senate um, from uh, what we call the filibuster, again my Spanish is even worse than my than my Dutch <laughs> uh, filibusters or filibusteros, those who were sort of uh, fomenting insurrection across Central America in the 1850s um, but it became a really good term uh, for explaining what people were seeing in the Senate uh, before and right after the Civil War where senators were learning techniques for holding up legislation that they opposed um, so it's not not great, noble, uh, I wouldn't say these are noble uh, linguistic roots here uh, for for the concept of the filibuster.
0: And yet, as you well know, it does give an individual senator potentially a lot of authority, a lot of uh, influence in the process. Oh,
1: for sure. And especially so today, because the way in which filibusters uh, work their way out, I mean, well, or step... Um, back up a second, right? So filibusters, what, what What are we talking about? It's really any effort to hold up the Senate, right? To block or delay the Senate from really getting to a vote. Um, but today, when we think about is there a filibuster, we look to the way in which majority tries to end a filibuster, which is in essence, how are we going to get the Senate to a vote? And the way they do that today, and for the since 1917, is to use what we call cloture, and that rule requires 60 votes to cut off debate and get the Senate to what it is that they want to vote on. Um, and, and that's increasingly, you in a slim majorities in a very partisan institution. That can be quite hard, especially for a 50-person um, Senate uh, majority to get all the way to 60. means you really need Republicans, many of them, to cross the aisle to cut off debate uh, to get to a vote.
0: Let me turn to another issue that we've been hearing a lot about, in particular with uh, the former Democratic leader, Senator Harry Reid of Nevada, more recently with the Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, and that is the issue of the nuclear option. Let me go back to 2013. Here is what Senator Harry Reid said about that issue. Even one of the Senate's most basic duties, confirmation of presidential nominees, has become completely unworkable. Mr. President, there has been un. believable unprecedented obstruction. For the first time in the history of our republic, republicans have routinely used the filibuster to prevent President Obama from appointing executive team or confirming judges. It's truly a troubling trend that republicans are willing to block executive branch nominations even when they have no objection to the qualifications of the nominee. That from the Senate Democratic leader, Harry Reid of Nevada, back in 2013. Sarah Binder, why did we see this nuclear option? Why did Harry Reid feel it was necessary?
1: Well, Democrats, uh, for several years leading up to 2013, but, but especially uh, while Obama uh, was president and there was a Republican minority intent on uh, blocking many of uh, Obama's nominees to the executive branch as well as uh, to the lower federal courts, um, Democrats were frustrated that Republicans uh, were constantly voting against cloture, meaning that Democrats couldn't get the 60 votes to cut off debate to vote to confirm nominees. Now, uh, the it was Harry Reid's choice as uh, majority leader in 2013 uh, to invoke what we call the nuclear option. Um, to, one way to understand the nuclear option is to think about and to understand why it's so explosive and why it's given the term nuclear is to think about how the Senate would normally change its rules here. So the goal here, as Harry Reid pursued, was to lower the number of votes you need to cut off debate. And he wanted to lower it from 60, a supermajority, he wanted to get it down to a simple majority, in essence, 51 senators. Now one route to changing the rules in the Senate is to actually, there's a rule that sort of explains how you change the rules. And not to get too complicated, but you can filibuster efforts to change the filibuster rule. Right? So if Harry Reid wants to lower 60 to 51, well, the minority party was obviously going to filibuster that. And it's even crazier than that, which is normally we say it takes 60 votes to get cloture to kill a filibuster. Well, it actually, under the rules, takes 67 votes to cut off a filibuster of effort to change the filibuster, which, I mean, is A, sounds a little crazy, uh, but, B, you could imagine, if you've got, you know, 53, 54 Democrats in your majority, you're the way you're going to get 67 senators to agree to, to take away some of their rights to filibuster nominations. So Harry Reid takes another avenue. It's called going nuclear. And in essence, it circumvents the rule. It really, it reinterprets the cloture rule, and it sets down a new interpretation, what we call a precedent and precedents are set by majority vote. So all Reid really had to do was find the right procedural situation and essentially offer a new interpretation. And the new interpretation of the rules was, you don't need 60 to end a filibuster of a nomination, you just need 51. And a majority of the Senate Democrats, they backed him up, and that's what we call going nuclear, right? Nuclear, in part, because it kind of avoided the real rules it circumvented the rules, but also because we used to think it was going to just so antagonize the minority party that they would start to blow up every remaining bridge in sight to make life even harder for the majority for all the other things they wanted to do in the Senate.
0: How then did the Republican leader, a couple of years later, Mitch McConnell, take that one step further when it came to Supreme Court nominees?
1: so when Reid and the democrats in 2013 set out this new interpretation of the rules they said it was only going to apply to nominees to the executive branch into lower court federal uh, lower federal courts so district courts and courts of appeals but the new precedent did not apply to supreme court nominees lo and behold it's 2017 Uh, Republicans now have President Trump in the White House, and they have a Republican majority in the Senate, and keep in mind, there was a vacancy uh, on the Supreme Court, because in the minority party, uh, rather in the opposition party, uh, Mitch McConnell in 2016 had basically taken the seat hostage uh, after the death of Justice Scalia. So there's an opening, there's an ambitious majority, there's a Republican Senate and a Republican White House. They uh, nominate Neil Gorsuch uh, to fill the vacant seat on the Supreme Court. Democrats are likely to filibuster. That means Republicans wouldn't be able to get to 60 to cut off debate on, uh, on the nomination to get to a vote. And so then uh, Mitch McConnell, as majority leader, you know, takes the same uh, page from Reid's playbook and runs the nuclear option to eliminate this time filibusters of Supreme Court nominees. So he basically kind of finishes the job that Harry Reid began uh, back in 2013.
0: So let me conclude with this question, because we all remember studying Congress and the Senate in particular. It was George Washington who had reportedly told Thomas Jefferson that the Senate was created to basically cool House legislation, just as a saucer was used to cool hot coffee or tea. So as you look at the Senate today and how the founders envisioned, is it what they expected?
1: Well, I think, number one, it's important to keep in mind that the framers did not expect and did not write uh, a filibuster into the rules of the Senate, right? They framers had very little patience for supermajority rules within the legislative process, except in some circumstances uh, like treaties and so forth. Uh, And they designed the Senate uh, to do all the things you laid out, but not relying on the need to overcome overcome a filibuster right? It had, the senators had longer terms. Originally, obviously, they were selected by state uh, legislatures. Uh, they, were, they were older than House members. And in, I think, quite importantly, they were on staggered terms, right? That only a third of the Senate is up at any given time. So any big winds of change uh, that might have uh, come through the early Republic the senate was expected not to be swamped by those uh passions uh passions for change right because it moved so slowly those different electoral timelines different nature of the senate and the responsibilities it was given the different nature of their constituencies um that produced a a chamber the senate that was quite different than the house Uh, and so importantly those differences remain (laughs) Although in a much, much, much more partisan period today, of course, um, sometimes and often, senators' priorities are to their party rather than to the standing up for the institution. And I, my hunch is that, that would surprise uh, and worry the framers who didn't really want to see parties. That might that really might make the framers uh, concerned about whether their experiment was working uh, much or much more so than the rules of the game uh, and whether and when and how you can filibuster.
0: Sarah Binder has written or co-written four books on legislative politics, including Politics or Principle, filibustering in the U.S. Senate. She serves as a senior fellow at Brookings here in Washington, D.C., and a professor of political science at George Washington University. All things Senate with Sarah Binder. We thank you for joining us here on C-SPAN's The Weekly. Sure.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: And this reminder, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at C-SPAN Radio and all of C-SPAN's coverage online anytime at cspan.org. I'm Steve Scully. We thank you for listening.